This is Sarah Thibault, host of the SideWoo podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible. From the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical, welcome to the SideWoo. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of the SideWoo. Yeah, so I wanted to start off the the kind of intro a little differently. I had this story that kind of came to mind before starting to edit the interview that I'm going to share with you now. Um, so in, for the last month or so, I've been pulling a daily rune. And today I got the rune um, called Wonjo, which basically looks like a giant um, P where the P part at the top is like pointy instead of round. And it made me think of the story that um, in kind of December 2019, I was in London um, and it was the holidays, you know, peak pre-pandemic travel, just living my best life. I had been traveling all over that whole year to different artist residencies and I was finally back, you know, in a big city and kind of and mostly just meeting up with friends and I was doing a little shopping, you know, before I returned to the States. And so and one of the things that I always did um, when I would go different places is I would get my dad a really cool shirt, you know, that kind of showed like the culture of a place or something that I knew that all of his music buddies would like. So like a local record store or a music shop or something like that. Um, and so I was walking around, you know, I was looking at the map to kind of place myself there again. Um, I think it was near Tottenham Court and I came across, um, I think it's called Denmark Street, which is kind of this music store street. And there was a store named Wonjo Guitars. And, you know, even then I was like into runes. So I was like, oh my God, I think I pulled a Wonjo rune this morning. I should go in, like that's a sign. And I went in and, you know, right away got really strange vibes. Um, the other part of the story is that when I was in Europe, I had a couple of big meetings coming up. So I just like went all out and got this big, fluffy, purple faux fur coat. And so I was wearing that in the store and it was like all of these music dudes and they clearly were like, this girl is ridiculous. There's no way she can shred on guitar. Um, and to make matters worse, like the first thing I said was like, hi, I'm looking for a present for my dad. Um, my dad plays guitar. And, you know, and then they just immediately were like, ew, this girl is like some kind of gross daddy's girl with that coat on. And, you know, she's a woman, so she's already lesser than us. Anyway, so I kind of fought through some of the crust um, and I made my way down to the basement where there was a really nice guy and he's like, well, we only have this one t-shirt, but if you go next door, there's um, a t-shirt that's really famous because Dave Grohl, the founder or the head musician of of Foo Fighters, um, he wore it to one of like the big like UK based concerts and boosted the sales for um, this. I, I'll have to look up the music store. But so he boosted the sales of the store in this particular T-shirt by like 100,000%. And he like would come in occasionally. So anyway, he's like, you should go next door and talk to them. They're super nice. Um, and so as I was leaving, I totally, you know, tried to say goodbye to the guy at the front desk who was like total like 30 something, you know, dude with like, 
like hip clothes and kind of skinny and he just like I go okay bye well thank you I'm gonna go next door and and he like buried he's like okay and he buried his face in his arms and then like kind of as if to like avoid having to engage in any further conversation with me and I was just like I'm leaving oh my god like get over yourself um but it just made me laugh because Wonju is actually the rune for joy, and the store could not be more joyless if it tried. But then the amazing thing is that, you know, next door, it was like these really nice music guys, kind of like the Jack Black music, um, where they were just like really friendly and talkative and told me the story about Dave Grohl coming in and getting the shirt. And then he came back in later and was like, you guys are welcome for all the business I brought you. And then I was able to tell them the story that with my dad, he, um, anytime there was a song on the radio that he didn't recognize, but he liked, he's always like, oh, who is that? And then we'd be like, oh, it's the Foo Fighters dad. And it would happen like every time. And it would be maybe the same song every time. Like this song, I believe at the beginning of Scrubs, he would do this too. Um, and so it just kind of all worked out because in the end, dad ended up with a shirt that was from you know, the Foo Fighters are made famous by the Foo Fighters and there's more personal connection there. Um, but anyway, you know, my dad passed in April. So I just wanted to share that as kind of a more personal anecdote before I kicked off this episode. Because, you know, coming to the holidays, it's always kind of weird. Um, well, I guess it's not always kind of weird. It is weird because this is the first holiday season that we've had without my dad. Um but yeah, I know probably I'm not alone because this has been a year with lots of loss for a lot of different people. So just know that, um, you know, I'm thinking about all of you and you're not alone in this. And I think we'll all have to find ways to, you know, cope together. So um, moving on. So on this episode, I talk with Karen McMurdo, a dancer, writer, healer, and the former residency director of the beloved Ness Artist Residency, which is in Iceland that if you know me, you know I've gone there three times and I loved it. Um, and Karen is just, you know, one part of why it was so great and it is still very great. Um, but Karen is now living in Reykjavik. Um, during our conversation, we talk about her background in dance, specifically the muscle and bone style that she performed around the world for almost 20 years as a freelance dancer. And then we talk about, you know, kind of making your way to Iceland as a foreigner and what it's like to live at a residency in a really small town. And finally, um, Karen, you know, is generous enough to open up about her challenges with fertility and some of the things that she wishes she had learned and, you know, what she would like to share with others. So it's a really special episode and, you know, I hope you enjoy. Um, I actually am testing something out. Um, I pulled two cards for the the episode as a way to kind of capture the theme um, or something for, you know, listeners to kind of take away. And so the first card was the King of Pentacles, um, which, you know, is this really earthy, grounded um, card. It's all about having kind of ownership over your body and over the material world and really like owning it. But you know, not being overly attached to it. And then the page of cups, which cross that. And so kind of about learning to listen to your emotions and reaching out for help around kind of answering questions within yourself. Um, 
because in this deck, the, the Page of Cups is kind of listening to a fish who's jumping out of a cup. Um, and that fish is meant to be kind of a spiritual advisor or maybe your guides. And so it's kind of about being in a human body and having to find your way through challenges, which I think, you know, makes a lot of sense after hearing Karen's story. If you want your own tarot reading, um, you can go to ninaarnett.co and schedule a 15-minute, 30-minute, or one-hour session um, online, or you can come to the Minnesota Street Project Holiday Fair, which is actually this Saturday as of the episode air date, um, so December 4th. And I will be doing tarot from 2 to 5 p.m. Um, but again, you can book it anytime after that. Um, so yeah, I think that's all for the news today. Um, now on to the episode. Yeah, but I feel like because we met each other when you were in like a very administrative role and yeah. you have told me a little bit about your dance background, but mm-hmm. um, I feel like this is a good chance to talk about it more in depth and hear about like how you started dancing and like what kind of dancing you did yeah. when you were in like the troupe in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe you could just start by talking about how you became a dancer. Okay. Well, um, well, unofficially, I did dance when I was a kid, uh, just at home, choreographing. Um, I didn't do any training. We couldn't really afford it back in the 80s in New Zealand. And, um, but I remember I loved to choreograph. So with some school friends, we would choreograph shows and um, you know, we would show our families and things like that. Also, I loved dressing up and performing. So I was always involved in acting or performing or something. And I did want to, to dance. Um, but I didn't start my formal training until 21, which was kind of considered more later. You know, a lot of people trained in something when they were teenagers before they started tertiary training. Wait, so because you were in New Zealand and there weren't like really dance schools, that's kind of why you didn't have more classes or it was just your family like didn't no we just didn't have enough money to pay for them so I had friends that did I remember one did jazz ballet so this was age say eight I remember feeling that and um but my mum and dad said you know we just can't afford it Uh, they were working for the church as ministers and were on a very low salary and um so we just you know couldn't afford that at that time but I guess I compensated by creating and I do remember my first choreography being to Barbara Streisand Memories from the Cats musical (laughs) which I think is hilarious because it's very sad (laughs) yeah I was gonna say that's so emo how old were you when you did that so so yes uh about eight no sorry nine I was age nine Okay. Yeah, because I remember where we were living at the time because um, we would move around with my parents' work with the church. So, And then I um, choreographed age probably 11, 12, uh, like a young high school age uh, on my class to uh, a Wham song. Okay, and that's a little bit more then, cheerful. Yeah, then another, uh, do you remember the hip-hop cameo group, Word Up? 
that was uh, um, um can you sing it a word up oh yeah call the word yeah 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 i do know <laughs> yeah that so okay, that cool. was very so, cool you're a child and, of the 80s yes like yes. or a teen of the 80s even yeah child of the 80s and then um early 90s being a teen yeah that, yeah okay that's similar to me so yeah, yeah i would choreograph on the class and so i, I did that twice and uh, performed it in the school assembly and I didn't really think what am I doing I just did it you know yeah. I guess when you're young and, and in some kind of creative interest you just do it it's only yeah. later that you get all the hang-ups about it <laughs> well like what were the fashion because I took classes and I did a dance to poison oh nice yeah yeah and um like the style at the time was like the leggings with the huge scrunchy socks. Okay, yes. Um, I can't remember what we wore for the Word Up one. Yeah, I was curious what the fashion was like in New Zealand. Uh, but but for Wham, I just remember uh, everyone had to wear black and white. So it was oh, like okay. black leggings and a white T-shirt or opposite. And then we had these flat shoes they were called karate shoes they were kind of like karate slippers used uh-huh. for karate and they were oh, okay. very popular as shoes to wear and so we wore those we had those but they were like jazz shoes and they look kind of like michael jackson's shoes at the time yes, probably like, kind probably of like soft leather cheesy. with like a little tie on them right nice ours was plain kind of like... just like a plain Uh, kind of canvassy shoe they're called karate shoes i think karate practitioners oh interesting okay i'll have a link to those so that was the yeah first costume design wow (laughs) fancy um (laughs) and then i guess you know um i just engaged in dance socially at high school and things like that um and then i didn't really come back to it until i was 21 and the two years before that, I was at university and I started practicing Ashtanga yoga. And so I was really getting into this physical practice and I just didn't feel like I knew what I was doing at university. I didn't feel like the right place. And um, I had heard about the certificate in dance course, which was a one-year program. So I, I left university and I decided to audition for that program because I knew someone in there and she said, yes, you should audition. And um, so that's when I kind of started creating again, I guess, out of a kind of yoga practice in a way that was the only physical thing I was doing. And then I just prepared for the audition, which actually was an improvisation um, in the end. Yeah. Wow. I would call it structured improvisation, which is actually what I've been doing all of my movement kind of life, really. That's the main thing that I tend to fall back on. So I would have ideas about some movements and then, you know, fill in the gaps, so to speak, through improvising to get to each stage that I was choreographing. So I got into that course. I was age 21. And I just flew in that course it was amazing because I had had no training um you know I learned things very fast and I just threw myself in I loved it 
and you know I didn't know anything about ballet um, that was also a part of the audition and she said go into first position and I was like what's that <laughs> you know oh my I had God, no idea really? about wow. anything and uh, she was saying plie and all of these terms French terms used in ballet and I didn't know what any of them meant and oh my god I, looked, I can't believe they let you in that's amazing well I was terrible at ballet I had no technique I had no awareness of well if you didn't form. know what a plie was there's no way you could know anything else because that's oh, like no and, and I didn't know where to put my pelvis on my alignment right. you know I wasn't really in my body and that that awareness way of, of alignment and um, kind of control and um, but my strength was improvisation so that was a part of the audition was cool. and how did you get into what you're calling on your website muscle and bone dance okay well that is a type of training um, okay. that is quite strong in New Zealand in the contemporary dance and performance um, world and history yeah so muscle and bone is a communal uh, what's traditionally known as kind of like a communal class like I said you're not there in your own head going oh what's this move how do I do that oh, oh. you know kind of trying to uh, copy the teacher you are moving together through the space and the whole idea is that you're not alone. You know, you, you're aware of your own mind, your own body, what's going on. And then you're trying to be kind of in tune with people around you as well as you're moving through the space with a series of exercises that are designed to expand your body, open up your joints, your muscles, your hips, your bones, your stamina, your flexibility. And so it's a real workout and it pushes yeah. the body physically and mentally. And it's, it's, it's improvised. So there's a series of exercises, but when you're facilitating it and leading that type of class, uh, you might, you know, just make something up in the moment, but based on a series of exercises that you're working with to keep a flow. So um, there's lots of different exercises that people have expanded now. A lot of different people do it, and it's throughout the world. But in terms of New Zealand, it became a part of New Zealand contemporary dance training at the school that I graduated from and then I later taught at. So that's why it's um, kind of a big part of so many people's development in terms of their body knowledge or uh, training. Yeah, because I haven't heard of it. Um, not that I'm like so tuned into the, you know, contemporary dance scene, but I've heard about contact improvisation. Do you know yeah. anything about that? Yes. Is that similar? It sounds like muscle and bone is kind of for training. And then I don't know if yeah, it's well, like muscle, a performance yeah, muscle, style as well. Muscle and bone, yeah, is also it's for training for performance. Traditionally, the, the training is there so that your body is prepared for performance. Um, but yeah, contact improvisation, uh, well, both share improvisation in terms of a, a way that, that the movement is embodied and expressed in a way. So it's, it's not set where you're, you're rehearsing it over and over and like contemporary where in a contemporary technique class, usually you'll learn a phrase of movement and then you are repeating that and trying to execute that 
um, better and better. And whereas with these other techniques, you're more in the moment and flow. Of course, you're still trying to execute movement as well as you can. You know, that's a part of training. But there's a, um, yeah, a different um, relationship to time and space because you're improvising. You're not aware all the time what's, what's coming or what's ahead. And contact improvisation obviously is about contacting either another person or object or surface. More relational or something. Yes. Uh, well, MMB is relational in terms of working together, but you don't necessarily have to touch uh, another person apart from uh, your body or if you're in a wheelchair or any other apparatus as an extension of your body on the floor that you're moving through. Um, yeah. Yeah, I um I met a contact improvisation dancer in Minnesota and he like invited me to a class mm. and I don't know, I just have a weird thing like I don't even like doing <laughs> partner stretches and yoga. <laughs> and I was like that's pretty much my worst nightmare is having uh, to touch a bunch yeah. of people. Um <laughs> it, it definitely can be like wow, is this like an orgy or what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I was like uh I'm But no. it's uh, if if you kind of strip away I think it'd be really fun if you uh, we're able to surrender to it, like, and you get into it and you create the energetic boundary for yourself. But Yes, it, of course, there's, um, you, you know, it's about having healthy boundaries and awareness and, and that it's not to do with, um, you know, like sexualizing anything or, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, there can be um, rules or, or kind of boundaries set up in different classes. You know, it just depends uh, what kind of, flow people are kind of getting into but really yeah. it's it, you know when you're working with the body that's your tool that's your um expression of of your creativity so the right. body works in a variety of ways depending on how you want to express ideas and conduct improvisation is a beautiful technique and and movement practice that um, opens up your body in so many ways working with gravity giving and receiving um, weight, you know, it's a lot, it becomes very functional when you're doing it. Of course, your experience could be a variety of things as you're moving in and out of people's bodies and spaces. Um, but, um, you know, that's also quite freeing as well, you know. So there's many um, contexts that it can be utilized for. But generally, as a dance practice, it's to gain more awareness. And also, it's really a practice of empathy, I think, you know, because you're not there for yourself. You're there sharing with someone and caring for them in a way when you're dancing mm -hmm. and moving with them. And it's a lot about building trust. And, like, connection. Well. And yes. Now, for me, that but, would be the appeal, yeah. but also the scary part, you know, where... Definitely. Like, but I just want to say those things are about building sensitivities as a body worker or, or performer. You know, that's that's what you need when you're practicing or, or want or are interested in that art form if you're not necessarily performing. It's keeping those sensitivities and awarenesses. Yeah. But um, you know, just start with a little bit of partner stretching or go to like a uh, you know basic level one and you might be surprised how enjoyable you might find it true or i'll just get a <laughs> massage i feel like that's like the right boundary for yeah. me <laughs> just a yeah. one way yeah um one of the things on your website you know you kind of have a little 
like ethos about your dance and your approach to your projects and your choreography was that um, the body is a weapon. And I was curious because I feel like a lot of what we're talking about is like healing and expression and connection. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm wondering if you still feel that way or if like what you meant by that at the time. Well, if I can say the full quote, if I can read my kind of, it's like a statement on my website. The body is a weapon, an embodiment of force, a sight that demands attention. Performance is the mechanism in which one can attend to this interstitial space of love and terror. So for me, yes, using the words are powerful indeed, and it is a powerful uh, statement. And uh, it's still agreeable to me. You know, it, it's more kind of, I guess, I see it as more poetic than like, I believe this. It's kind of like a poetic statement about performance, the body, what, what its ability or potential can be. I guess how I understand weapon is the next line and embodiment of force, you know, something that can push out things, ideas, forces, energy, movement, and viewers pick that up, you know, it's transformative. It can change reality for people or for the person engaging in it. And, you know, I think of today, the body as a weapon, protests all over the world. You, you know, people are taking their bodies. It is like a weaponized force saying, I'm tired of this in the government or this and that, you know, everyone's utilizing their body to communicate um, or defend, you know, and that's um, how I see it. It can defend something or can express something. Um, and it's very powerful and transformational for the person as well as for uh, the environment or the viewer, the people experiencing it. Yeah. Cool. Um... When you were like kind of regularly performing, because you mm. did, a, you like toured with a tour group, right? That was based out of New yeah. Zealand, but you traveled all over. I, so when I graduated from the degree program at a place called Unitech New Zealand, um, which is still there, um, that was in 2000. And um, since then, I mean, for about 20 years, I worked as a freelance dancer and worked with a lot of independent choreographers, made my own solo work or in the early days some kind of installation work. Didn't really know what I was doing, but <laughs> just a few of us around at the time uh, were very experimental and had nobody else at that time um, around. You know, it was, there was a bit of a gap in our dance world and then it grew and now it's so vibrant and diverse and, you know, but when we graduated, my classmates and I, we, we kind of had to fend for ourselves a little bit. So I guess we just started creating, you know. Um, so I did that for my early years. And then a few years later, I worked with uh, Mao Dance Company, which is uh, spelled M-A-U, it's a Samoan word. And that's directed by Lemmy Ponifacio, who's the other person who's saying brought MB through his practice to New Zealand. 
And then I worked with another company called Touch Compass Dance Company. And that company is a contemporary dance based company or was more so then. And uh, it is an inclusive company. So it has diverse uh, bodies and um, experiences in that company. So able-bodied or disabled, um, or as now uh, people are using the more term crip, crippled in terms of um, better terminology uh, as well. So yeah, I worked with that company for about three years and both those companies are very different aesthetics and styles and processes. Um, with Mal Dance Company, it's a lot of structured improvisation. It was big group work, and that's where I got to tour a lot internationally with one particular yeah. piece called Requiem. And uh, I really enjoyed working in the group there. And we got to travel to Europe and New York, and we also performed in New Zealand. And with Touch Compass, we did a lot of shows in New Zealand and some uh, festival in Australia as well. Um, my other group that I enjoyed training with was La Pocha Nostra, which is more of a performance art group. And, oh, yeah, based in and San Francisco, Mexico, right? Yeah, uh, with uh, Guillermo Gomez-Pena and his troop members. So for me, those three creative worlds have really been an inspiration and um, satisfaction in a way and, and majority of types of ways of working that I worked with. Yeah, with those three, I call them creative spaces, I guess. Um, so in between those people, yeah, it was you know, one-off shows or independent works with other colleagues uh, around yeah. my age or younger, um, yeah, and projects. We would say it's project by project, you know, if you're not yeah, yeah. just with one company uh, doing, you know, your job just for that. Got it. So, like, that's kind of what, as a freelancer, that is yeah, the yeah. model that dancers would follow yeah, is you kind yeah. of go project to project. Yeah. So, so that cool. allowed me to really learn many processes and also discover that I was also interested in many different processes, not just one way of creating. So it really was helping me define, I guess, my own interests creatively and what I was capable of and where I wanted to you know, go creatively. Yeah. And what did you do? Cause, um, did you get like stage fright as you became more experienced? You still got stage fright. Yeah. I, I guess I wouldn't, it's probably stage fright, but not I stage fright, but just fright. would you get the nerves and nerves? You know, yeah. I would, because I love the stage, you know, it's, or, or a performance space if it wasn't a traditional stage, you know, I love all of these spaces that are created, you know, sometimes I've performed in, you know, the street, you know, that becomes your space. But um, I would say I would be more nervous in, say, um, spaces where it's more uh, a set time, like performing in the street. I'd be used to it socially, you know, walking around, living my life, you know, and uh, whereas, say, a gallery or other spaces where people say, yes, come at five o'clock, we're doing this performance or in yeah. a theatre traditionally, that was, would be when I'd have more nerves because it's like a setup. You know, we know what's coming, it's happening, and 
So I'm curious kind of what you would do to like work with that energy or, you know, because I'm just for the people listening, you know, like as someone who's not a regular performer, like, you know, a lot of people like nothing is scarier than having to get up in front of a large crowd and do that. Mm -hmm. So it's like super interesting for someone who's like drawn to that as their profession, you know, like how do you kind of navigate that and like. Um, what are some tricks that you mm. did to kind of help okay. yourself like calm down um, and like work with it? I think preparation is the key, you know, that's okay. why this idea of training or, or preparing the body is so important because through that then you can learn techniques like just how to breathe calmly, breathing in the nose, out the mouth, you know, or placing your hand on your heart area or belly area while you breathe. You know, things that calm the nervous system will bring you into the moment. Plies, <laughs> back to bending the legs. Like before you go on, you mean? Or? Yeah, bending the legs just to ground, you know. Um, everyone has a, everyone who's a performer has, you know, their little ritual. But I would say before people go on, there's a sense of silence or quietness, you know. Uh, to engage in your own space, um, to be calm. Um, and that's what I would do, just breathe. Um, before the, the show or the performance would open, I would always walk into the space or the stage, wouldn't necessarily execute all the movements I had to do. You do that in dress rehearsal, but I would walk through my space. You know, I go here and there and, and just kind of walk the line, so to speak, of it. Um, I always found that calming and then look out to the space or look around if it's, uh, you know, like an empty, you know, if it's a theater, you do like uh, look out at the, yeah, look out to the auditorium and, you know, most people around are warming up and stuff as well. After you've done a kind of group thing together. Did you ever freeze? Freeze like on while I'm performing. Um, I'm just going back in my 20-year memory bank. I know, it's a long time. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't think I've – no. I haven't frozen, like, you know, shock, what the hell is next or what am I doing? But, um, you know, I've made mistakes, like the the wrong movement or, uh, you know, the body slipped somewhere or I forgot to put this thing on and I should have or – something like that and they're always the fun parts because then you have to improvise which is not not uh, a fearful thing for me that's the interesting part where the work is oh you have to do this now to cover up that seemingly bad thing or mistake you know and and you as performing artists especially dancers you, you kind of again train or you know learn to to go with that flow, you know, because yeah, anything can happen. Well, really. I remember I did tap jazz and ballet growing up. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, I would be really good at learning the rules of the dance, you know, but um, mm. unlike you, it wasn't as like natural to be on stage. And then I didn't feel like I was allowed to improvise. So when I screwed up, mm. 
you know, I was like, oh my God, you know, and I would like talk about it afterwards. And my mom's like, well, I didn't notice. So yeah. maybe just realize like no one else real cares or notices because yeah. they don't know the dance, you know? Mm. And I was like, oh, interesting. And so that kind of created an awareness of like, you can kind of fake it. Like you don't, you know, people only know if you react that you yeah. messed up. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends what the, what, yeah, what's happening in the performance. You know, if everyone's in unison, yeah, like course. doing the same thing, it might be obvious if someone's, you know, like got, messed got up, their yeah. legs, someone have fallen down. and But, you know, that, that's, um, that can just happen, you know. And I think, you know, and where contemporary dance practice is now, I would say, you know, it's so diverse and, and high, much more hybrid now in terms mm-hmm. of practices and how people perform that, you know, I wouldn't think anyone would think anything these days about. <laughs> So um, once you kind of, well, I want to get to how you ended up in Iceland, which is where you are now. Um, But I want to quick talk about like, what is it like living in New Zealand? Because it's a place that like most people don't even ever go. And then Mm -hmm. I think like I associate, you know, Lord of the Rings landscape with New Zealand. And I read a book about a woman who went to New Zealand and she's like, I got there and I just like met people as I was traveling and just stayed in everyone's yeah. house. Like while I was there, she's like, yeah. I booked it. I booked a hotel for like the first three nights. And then after that I stayed there a month and like just wow. stayed with people. Um, and I was curious to find out like how true that is or um, kind of what it was like to live there you know and like through the 80s and then more recently I know you haven't been there for a while but yeah I mean I haven't been there apart from two visits uh in the last six and a half years but um you know there's some aspects that I'm sure are still a part of New Zealand lifestyle and culture definitely this thing of hosting people being friendly you know being great travelers um, this kind of ease about traveling I think Kiwis have which is odd because we are so far away from everyone and everything <laughs> yeah when I think we all fell in love with your prime minister yes. during the yeah. pandemic yeah lots of reasons I think she's made herself yeah on the international map of you know this is a good way to lead you know um um, so how did you end up in Iceland? It's kind of funny that you went from this other, you know, kind of idyllic island nation to one farther north, but it's kind of got a similar role in the world. Yes, another isolated place. Yeah. Yeah, I always think it's funny how I ended up here so far away from New Zealand, but also more isolated in some respect. And also... You're not the only person from that part of the world. Like when I go to the residency you were at, there's so many New Zealander and Australian people. Yeah. It's bizarre. I'm like, how did I end up here with all these people <laughs> from Australia? <laughs> yeah, it must be to do with, um, it's not the equator, it's the magnetic field. Yeah, it's like everyone's like, <laughs> the axis. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I was looking for an artist residency when I was uh, teaching at UniTech New Zealand um, at the dance school there on the program 
and I had requested to take a like a sabbatical uh, where I would uh, be at this residency for three months, which, as you know, was in Skagerstrand, Nez residency, uh, North Iceland, and then to be in Europe for three months and participate in a lot of dance workshops and training and kind of get to know the scene and learn some stuff. And um, I don't even know how I found the Nez residency or Iceland. I just was looking at this, I think it was Res Artists website, and I just saw the images and thought, wow, that looks beautiful. And I just wanted to be very far away at that time and be somewhere very remote and quiet. I think my life was quite busy, mm-hmm. but I didn't really know how to break that cycle of just doing what I was doing and I didn't really rest that much and I never took a holiday actually Um, so I thought I did but I didn't really (laughs) well it's hard when you're relying on your creative talents for your job it's like no one's going to give you a holiday and so you have to no I mean you have breaks but you're always kind of doing something I yeah I never I guess it's why I never went to Australia or Fiji or um, in those times of my life anyway, 20s and, and 30s, you know, it was, I was always about dance work and creating projects, teaching, and if it was a break, um, it would just be in my hometown at that time, Auckland City, you know. Mm. So, um, but I thought I was on holiday, <laughs> but I really wasn't. So I think that's why I, I actually got quite burnt out and fatigued and that led me to want to be in a very remote place so I ended up coming to Iceland after I got accepted to that residency Nez Mm -hmm. and I stayed for the three months and created two performances and just really enjoyed getting back into my um, creative process after teaching for a while Um, and then I as I mentioned you know, went to a lot of European countries to participate in festivals and uh, workshops and meet European dance people and choreographers. And uh, then at the end of that trip, I was asked if I wanted to come and um, co-direct the residency. Back in Iceland. Yeah, back in Iceland. Um, And I thought, wow, this is what I've kind of been looking for. I I wanted to leave New Zealand. You know, I just felt like my work at that time had kind of completed itself. Um, I loved teaching. I, you know, when when you're teaching often, um, you know, at at a program like that, you don't always have enough time to perform. So you kind of go into that teaching mode, which is like research, you know, creating classes and, um, I was leading a lot of creative classes with students and supervising them. So I learned so much about myself, about you know dance and movement practice and improvisation and students, you know what they could do, and they taught me so much. But uh, I was getting burnt out um, just from my life, really. Wow, yeah. And then you're kind of just starting in Reykjavik, having finally kind of transitioned away from that role. Um, yeah. 
And that's yeah, so exciting. I had six years in a remote town, Skagerstrand, as you've been there, was it three times now? Yes, three times. Yeah. Everyone knows. <laughs> Something about that place. <laughs> um, it's like a Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> it is. Oh my God, it sucks you back. Like the people it who does. go, like, always have to return. Like, it's yes. like. Yeah. You can't just yeah. go once. Like it was like, come yeah. back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So one thing I wanted to ask you, because having gone now three times and also been to other residencies for like a couple months, you kind yeah. of see, you're able to witness like the cycle of the resident and the way that artists respond to the same space or um, culture of wherever the residency is Mm. and you can kind of compare it to your own first time seeing that culture and that land or whatever and how like in some ways yes every artist is a special snowflake star in the sky but in other (laughs) ways like there's only so many responses that there are and that people really end up doing a lot of the same things like or having Mm. kind of not like exactly but but definitely there's like certain themes that people respond to in certain kind of approaches or certain like for example I went to this residency in a small town in Portugal and you know it was like I'd been to Lisbon right before that but it was really my first time in Portugal and I was there for like Mm. a month and then a whole new crop of residents came And it was like blowing my mind because this girl came who basically said everything that I said when I first got there, (laughs) like (laughs) remarking on the language and making the same jokes about, and I'm like, wow, I'm really not original. And (laughs) maybe it's impossible to be original because it's like this culture has been here long before you and will continue to exist. And I don't know, in, in, in Iceland, I, like one of the things when you first get there, you see this big sign that's like, if you have too much stuff by the end of the residency, you can hire the service to take yeah. your bags. And it's like, oh, do you have too many rocks and feathers? <laughs> because <laughs> like people just spend yeah. their whole time like carrying, yeah. like gathering, yeah. like yeah. debris. Everyone takes a rock or picks up a stone or something. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a long-winded question about yeah, <clears throat> like seeing that over like five or six years, where you're like, oh, these are the things that people are thinking mm. about here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems so long now when when I hear it out loud. Six years of yeah. that. Um, I guess you know, um, it just didn't bother me after a while, um, even though it can be tiring uh, responding to those same questions all the time. Um, But it's a part of the work there, you know, and you kind of have to acknowledge that everyone's having a new experience. Right. You know, um, rather than me just getting grumpy and going, oh, bloody hell, you know, I've said this a hundred times. You Uh know, it it was my job to say that again and again every month. Um, And then also, yeah, have, you know, similar responses. Yeah, I was thinking creatively. Um, I think the most common thing people seem to share would be beautiful, small um, watercolours of our mountain there. 
fuck on yourself. <laughs> yeah, that was the most common, I think, thing that you could say that people shared, you know, thinking that like daily, daily practice of um, oh. doing watercolours of the mountain. Of the mountain. Yeah, that, that would, I would say be the most common thing that people Oh, that's so shared. interesting. I would definitely take a photo, you know, at least once a day of the mountain yeah. because, yeah. yeah, the light really changes a lot yes. and the colour yeah. and the clouds yeah. and the snow it's it's a beautiful well iceland is you know beautiful landscape and yeah you, know, you come here for that you don't come to like go in the city life the city life is fun and there's great city life but you know you come here for the land and moving around it and exploring that um so yeah a lot of people would you know want to go to similar places i'd say you know to get out of skagostrond for a little bit um, but always talked about the light, definitely. The light and the wind, because it's a very windy. Oh, my God. The wind is unreal. Place in the northwest. So that experience, you know, was also shared. Um, and I guess, I, you know, I, I was facilitating that it's a bit like improvising what, how I did my classes, you know, facilitating the space with, dance or performers is kind of the same role where you just let things unfold you know I may have seen movements before or you know but you have to say well if you're working with new students for example that's the first time they might be experiencing something or working right. with paint or something else you know material that might be new for them but you know it doesn't mean it's um, new in terms of uh, the practice but people have to arrive at a place to get to know their practice. Do you know what I mean? So to me, it was a bit the same where it's like now I'm in, now, then I was in a role of facilitating artists, mostly visual artists, but some performing and they were engaging in things that were new to them, even though the mountain's been there for many years and thousands of people have walked that mountain or taken photos of the light, but for them, you know, it's that new experience and that's what that's why I went there that's why you did that's why yeah people go there is to engage in that new environment yeah you know when I think um and like another thing that people would do and I did as well is like interview Dagny who works at the Museum of Prophecies like yeah well locals were always open to the artists you know and, and what I did was because it's a small town and yeah. small resources, if there was too many people doing the same thing, I would kind of somehow manage it uh, so it wouldn't um, pull all the resources of the locals. You know, like if every month Dagny's doing an interview, maybe sometime it might get a bit busy for her or tiring, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, like not just you, but imagine living somewhere where you have this like group of like 15 artists who are just like thinking you're like this oddity to like examine and make art about, you know, I mean, that must be really strange too. Well, I mean, I can't say how they, the locals in Skagastron feel or felt or respond to that, but um, I just know that locals would be uh, welcoming and interested that yeah. people are interested in their culture 
and and their land and their stories you know? totally so yeah. i think you know that's what i saw anyway many locals so excited to share yeah their stories or their home or their folklore or yeah places to go you know um to travel to and yeah no i agree and like they're very proud that that inspires icelanders because they're like wow you know what do you think of iceland you know that's one of the most common questions that uh Icelanders or Icelandic residents ask to travelers. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I felt like people who live in Skagastrand are like very proud of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, because it's a beautiful environment. And I think yeah. like all small towns or remote places, you know, you have to be proud of it because yeah. it's where you live. So um, even if there's difficult times or, uh, incidents, you know, um, there's a strength that happens within a small community to pull together yeah. and overcome that, you know, and Skagerstrand, I think, is definitely a town like that, which is yeah. very powerful and attracting to people, you know. Yeah, it's like a small business where you, if you don't do it, no one's going to do it. It's not like there's like higher ups yeah. who are just going to take care of it or who you yeah. can't trust or whatever. It's like you have to wear all the hats. Like people have like three jobs because, you know, if they don't also run the gym and the pool, then the pool's not going to be open kind of thing, yeah. you know. And, yeah. Um, I feel yeah. like with that comes this like sense of, yeah, pride and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And community support. I'd like to just take a moment to um, give listeners a heads up that we're about to talk about some sensitive um, subject matter around miscarriages and um, female reproductivity. So if you know that's a sensitive topic for you, you might want to skip the next section. Um, also, there was a weird thing that happened while we were talking and it interrupted us. Um, you know, I live in San Francisco, so there was some crazy stuff going on in the street. Um, and rather than explain that in the moment, I just put a little beep um, and then started our conversation up again. So if you hear that, that's what that is. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of switch gears and like, mm. you know, talk about like you getting resettled and how like you and your husband are kind of trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And um, it sounds like, you know, you've had some ups and downs with it. And I was wondering if you'd mm -hmm. kind of share your experience. Yeah. So, yes, we've moved to Reykjavik uh, last November and really loving uh, being in a new place. And, um, you know, I, I'm happy to have had my remote time, but I'm happy to now be here <laughs> and uh, sharing our life here. And yes, so we're, you know, um, working on having a baby. And, uh, but like most people who try, some suffering can happen. So we've experienced miscarriage. And um, that's something, um, as you know, I'm currently writing about and getting it edited and reworked because I'd like to share that story. Uh, online but I'm happy to 
talk about it as well. Yeah, yeah. well, um, I mean, I, you know, I know it's like not comforting to know that other people have had them, but um, mm. I know regardless, like it, mm. it's such a loaded experience. I was wondering if you yeah. could talk a little bit about how you kind of felt when it happened and just um, like, is there anything that you wish you would have known like before mm. and what would you kind of say to people having gone mm. through it now? Cause I feel like it's not really something people talk about and <clears throat> that's why I think it's so no, cool that you're writing about it, you know, is it, yeah. it, it should be more out there. It's just like, it's like, you know, anything with women's bodies, it's so taboo oh, and shameful. I know and anything is, is put in the dark, you know? down there you know what's down, happening down, down there, there. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> lady parts <laughs> and yeah it's just too too wet too bloody too creative too powerful too unknown too secretive too beautiful too sexy you know a place anything that is kind of secretive like this we we fear is created around it like you know and um you know the place of the womb is where you know people are created physically anyway physiologically and uh growing and it's a powerful place and it's amazing i think that humanity even exists at all because it's very small window of chance to get pregnant you know and um so when that happens and then it fails, so to speak, then, you know, there's so much layers around shame or blame or why, because no one really knows most of the time why it didn't continue to grow, you know, why this life uh, was ended, you know, and it's happening inside the body, inside that person who has the womb. So I think naturally... A woman or the person who has the womb and has experienced miscarriage feels blame because that's the kind of first layer of uh, emotion as well as grief, you know. Right. Oh, what did I do? Did I do this or didn't I do? Um, when mostly it's actually no one's fault at all, you know. It's, it's the beautiful design of life that says, oh, this didn't grow well or this this wasn't here in the chromosome or something, so it's, it's not going to continue, you know, just happens. Right now, you know, um, people are having, you know, children older, and so yeah. sometimes it, you know, takes a couple tries for yeah. it to happen, and so I feel definitely. like it's definitely happening yeah. more like naturally now than maybe yeah. it did you know in the 50s or something I think I think there's an expectation that we may have you know I've got to get pregnant now and, and it's got to happen fast and uh, for some people it can but it, it's different for everyone just for so many reasons you know and you know for my husband and I we tried a few months and then probably took I guess five six no, maybe seven months, and then I was pregnant, and then eight weeks later I miscarried, and then 
I had two miscarriages, and so then it was six months later again uh, I was pregnant, and then the same amount of time, eight weeks, and then I miscarried again. Um, the first time was much more scary and intense because I you know, was experiencing it for the first time. The second time it was, of course, upsetting, but it wasn't as intense physic physically. It wasn't as painful, and that helped me kind of move through it easier because it can be very painful. And, you know, many people are having miscarriages at a variety of different times along that timeline of the growth of the embryo or, or the baby. So that also changes the experience. But I think it needs to be, mar not marketed, but like advertised or information out there in a way that it's a, nor it's a very normal part of our process of trying to create life, <laughs> you know, that it happens. You know, it, it's not like you're a failure and this shouldn't have happened. That it's a, it's a very normal part of the process it's unfortunate part of that process, but, you know, it's like three out of four or something pregnancies, uh, you know, can end in miscarriage, like the first, first tries, like statistics like that or something. Um, um, what, like, would you tell your past self, you know, kind of, before you had your first miscarriage, like what would you tell yourself to kind of help you prepare emotionally or physically? Or... Um, I would say, which is what I experienced, which is what I'm writing about is to trust the body, you know, and it's interesting because I've worked with the body so much in my dance uh, life. Um, but I've never learnt to trust my body in the same way that I had to while dancing. So if I was talking back to myself, I would console myself and say, just trust your body. It knows what, it, what to do to let that, uh, let that life go, you know, to let it be. Because that process is in place, you know, it, that design is in place. Um, and I was reading, actually, when I was researching for my story, other stories of miscarriage or what's out there online, and it's, I don't know his name, it's the American actor from um, Dawson's Creek. Um, Wait, as in Dawson? The, like the Yeah, main... the blonde guy. Yeah, oh, yeah, I forget but... what his name is. Um, I'll look while you talk. Yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot his name, but him and his wife, and, and he posts a lot on Instagram about the James. whole shame of miscarriage. And, oh, wow. James Vanderbeek. Uh, yes. And how, um, you know, their experience for them, but also that the term should be changed. You know, miscarry is already a word you saying, know, yeah. I miscarried. It's like the person holding the embryo's blame, you know, um, so I thought that was interesting. Too, I love that because it. that's true for older pregnancies as well. You know, your geriatric pregnancy yeah. after the age of 35. <laughs> that's ridiculous. You know, just that word. Is... I think um, 
I mean, not that this is related, but it, in some ways it is like this idea of placing blame on people for things where mm. it's the system that's broken and not the person. Um, yeah. Like thinking about student loan debt and how right now it's mm. being called like forgiveness. You know, if, if the government okay. is going to waive the loan payments, it's called forgiveness. Oh, they forgive you. <laughs> you know, because you're like the sinner who like dared yes. to take out student loans. Wow. Well, that, that's what the penal system needs is forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just um, in the medical, you know, establishment, like creating a culture that is borderline like antagonistic to women, you know, by calling mm. them geriatric, by saying it's a miscarriage, by not letting them, yeah. you know, advocate for themselves or trust their own bodies. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just that real clinical kind of absent you know, language, you know, which again is very absent from the experience, let alone, well, where's this person from? How do they identify? What's their cultural heritage and background and rituals surrounding life and death, you know, and the body? So, you know, um, we were talking about, yeah, like shifting terms and, you know, and, and identify, you know, identifying the, emotional experience and uh the grieving and um you know allowing people to go through that process and identifying it not just saying okay this happened boom let's get it out and whatever and clean you up and off you go you know I mean for me I didn't go to a hospital you know I was in the remote town the first time so about that um so the the hospital that would have been able to assist if I needed any help was two hours away. So I think I really just went, you have to trust your body, Karen, that it's really going to process this and complete itself. And maybe being there helped me do that instead of rushing to the system that's to intervene something. My body is already doing it and, um, you know, letting it, um, come out, you know, because like I said, it's designed to do that, you know, and over those coming days after the embryo leaves the body, your blood is repairing it and still releasing it just like a period, you know, it's just letting it out and cleansing in a way, you know, cleansing that flesh. So the hormones that you would have had, Oh, the hormones, um, after, as the, what is it, as the miscarriage is happening, it's very intense, you know, um, I found it very painful the first day, and I think that's when it's really pulling away from the womb, detaching itself to leave the body, um, and to me, I think that's the most painful part, and then you're just waiting for it to kind of come out so you're just kind of in this strange space of life death grieving and um and then once it's out I guess everyone has their own way of managing that and dealing with that but even that would be good to have information out there you know like a pamphlet or something in the medical system uh for people that do prefer to access that as well to say here's you know, 
some ways that it can occur and, and what you can do, you know, to rest and, and you can, you know, take Panadol or ibuprofen, you know, just very simple uh, things to ease your body and, you know, just to rest, really, drink lots of fluids and let, let the body process and to have counselling if someone needs that or especially if they're alone and going through it alone or secretively, you yeah. know, for me and my husband, you know, we're helping each other uh, work through that. And at that, the first time, um, you know, uh, some of our, fam our family members knew. So, you know, they're also grieving because mm. it's a loss, you know, it's a loss of a life. And um, that shouldn't just be um, brushed over, you know. Um, it's yeah, like so, a future too that maybe you start to imagine as you. Yeah, you know. yeah. And then because you know how hard it was to get there. You know, it took a lot of time for some people. Um, for me, it did. took some time. And then when it happens, you're like, oh, you want to hold on to that and uh, protect that, you know. So when it's no longer there, it's like, oh, man, you know, okay, we've got to keep trying this again. But once um, my body had stopped bleeding, I really had a relief and an overwhelming sense of um, calmness and in my story I'm writing about how I felt completely connected to nature and life and it was like a new empowerment and um, a deep experience I would call it a spiritual experience that, that I had um, so that was almost comforting as well just being in tune with myself and um, I call it grief with relief you know it was kind of happening at the same time yeah, yeah. So I would say to people that have experienced that to not be afraid and or for people that may have this in the future to trust their bodies and don't be afraid to ask for help, you know, with women's clinics or, um, you know, what they feel if there's other um, people or, um, you know, institutions or groups or communities around that they identify with and connect with to reach out for support yeah because everyone will have a slightly different response to that loss you know mm. but that one is to overcome it you know and I would say that as well that move through it like any stage of grief and then take your time but let it go you know because it's gone you know and give yourself time to heal your body, to be prepared if you want to try again, then to be in a good place for that, you know, not to replace what's gone, but to start anew. And I think that's like anything to let it go, you know, um, and that would be my advice. I hope it's taken in an understanding way when I say move on and let it go, but yeah, and the time that people need to do that, but you know, um, yeah. And what would like as someone going through it? How what has helped <clears throat> in terms of the types of support that people have provided? 
or what do you wish people had done? You know, like when my dad died, um, like people sending me food or coming over and giving yeah. me food actually was like hugely helpful because yeah. I just couldn't manage the thought of like having to make food or buy it or whatever. And then eating it alone kind of sucked. And so like yeah. that was really helpful and yeah. an established tradition, but yeah. Um, I didn't realize how important it was until it was like my turn to go through it. Um, yeah. You're so grateful to not have to do yeah. that mundane chore of cooking. <laughs> yeah, so things like that, like, I don't know if you like that, that you felt like had were super helpful or that you wish you had had um, in terms of support. I think the people that knew about it, which were a couple of friends, but mostly family um, just obviously condolences and you know um saying caring things and acknowledging that you know there's not much they can do apart from that really um and my husband and I just supporting each other taking our time to process it feeling sad you know for for some time um <clears throat> but in terms of institutional support that's where it needs to be more you know I had support on the phone in terms of uh, saying okay what's happened in this process okay it sounds like you're good you don't need to come in you know the blood is clearing it sounds all natural you know so I felt lucky to go through it naturally you know um, without any other intervention by hospitals but I think they could offer some kind of social support maybe um like yeah. counseling or something you know or that you get you know that there's uh you know there's hotlines for everything <laughs> you know maybe there's a certain time or something where you could just chat with a nurse or someone that's because sometimes you you want to i was happy to go through it my natural way but i also wanted some kind of medical confirmation that I was okay because I don't really know what was going on you know so I kind of it's wanted to know that as well that yeah your body's doing fine it's good and then have a little chat a bit more about my emotional state mm. and then I would feel more like oh okay cool but I just did that myself I supported myself my husband supported me my family members through their caring words and communication but I really supported myself through it, you know? Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah, yeah, that's hard. Um, and it sounds like the medical care you received was like more laid back than like people in the States would be, I feel like. Oh, definitely. From some of the articles I've read that are mostly from the States, you go straight to the hospital. If I was in the city, I probably would do that actually, you know, um, but that's why I almost, feel happy in a way which is strange but that I did experience it naturally because it taught me that the body is does know what to do uh -huh. you know and that if something if it was doing it and then this process happened to have a problem in it then again the body would tell me it would say oh you haven't stopped bleeding for six days now or a week so it's still heavy or you're still experiencing pain that's when you go there's there's still a problem here it, it hasn't been able to release itself fully from me, mm. you know. Then I would go, okay, now I need intervention. 
but we're not taught that we're not taught to go trust the body and then you know it's just like intervene (laughs) before you can access that like wisdom that comes with your being in tune with yourself and your physical self yeah or or being taught that you know again the pamphlet this miscarriage pamphlet with the new name saying trust your body (laughs) let it happen give yourself some time you know and then if you know these symptoms or these things haven't changed or lessened then you know that's a good time to get you know an intervention and that's you know something else I mean I don't want to put down any people that have gone through intervention straight away or anything like that that's not what I'm saying I'm saying um, there's a natural process in place that we fear yeah yeah? because we don't know about it because there's no collaborative open discussion between experiences that people have as well as you know medical and professional advice and you know research that's what I'm saying it's like it doesn't match. That's why we're all having these experiences of miscarriage in secret and in private, you know, and that's a shame. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. I know that. You're welcome. I'm happy to speak about it. And I, um, yeah, it, it helps. I think it helps to speak about it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Karen. Um, thank you. And um, my pleasure coming up that you're excited about that you would like to share or uh yes well now we're in Reykjavik and just have a new lifestyle I'm um trying to dabble in some writing as you know so that's something I want to explore these coming months is um yeah write more stories and get them out there so I'm just doing a online course literary techniques and uh yeah learn more about you know prompts and just getting into a writing practice yeah so that's something i'm doing and also practicing yoga um getting into that and possibly taking an improvisation workshop uh with someone at a, a yoga school here at a retreat so uh that's really great because i haven't been in the dancing for about three years now and it's something i would enjoy um to do to continue facilitate and create more yeah classes or spaces around improvisation so i'm looking forward to seeing if that will develop because i do miss do miss that even though um you know i'm not Really, I, I, I mean, I used to teach that MMB class all the time, but I can't really do that anymore yeah. with my body. It's just a little bit exhausting. So um, just trying to find yeah, new ways of where my creative life can go. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I wish you luck on all Thank of Thank you that. so much. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining the SideWoo podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Side Woo. Thank you so much for joining me and please subscribe, rate and review or follow um, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and I will see you next week.